In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, good morning again on this um, somewhat unusual Sunday where it's um, Shane and me here in the church, and we've been here before, haven't we, Shane? In this place where um, we miss all of you. Uh, We miss you and we love you. And I hope that in this time, as the virus resurges, um, that you find that peace and stillness that surpasses our understanding, that you call up those you love, and that we continue to be a safe community um, here in Fauquier County and our whole region where we all come from. This week, um, I had the great privilege and pleasure of sitting down with one of our um, soon-to-be college students who is going off to Chapel Hill, North Carolina, to study classics, uh, to study Latin and Western civilization. And whenever I get to do this, get to sit down with someone before college begins and have a great discussion about faith and the journey of faith that we're all on with God, deconstruction and reconstruction. Tell me what kind of God you don't believe in. I want to know. Tell me what you've learned after a year of pandemic as a high school student going into an uncertain world. I want to know. It reminds me of this calling and how much I love it and how much I love being with all of you on this journey. We're on a journey where some say there are states and stages of faith. People like Robert Fowler, who wrote about this, this notion that faith development, to some extent, comes in stages. Maybe it's not linear. But most of us are not surprised, knowing our own life, that we ourselves have gone through different stages and states of faith depending on the shape of our life. Most of us, I think it's safe to say, begin with the same stage where we basically embrace the faith of our family, the faith passed down to us. And if we were raised in a church, which more and more many aren't, we adopted perhaps the faith of our church. Sometimes because of this, we can be rather dogmatic and even arrogant about it, insisting that it is the faith that has been believed everywhere, always, and believed by everyone. Sometimes we can even stay stuck in this stage of faith. The stage that follows, according to Fowler, is one in which we begin to question our religious beliefs. And this is where, with my... um, younger adult friend, uh, we were sort of talking about going through a period of reevaluation in which we make the faith we inherited into the faith that we affirm, perhaps. For various reasons, we begin to question all that has been handed down to us. And we start to know in our hearts the God that maybe we don't believe in. Typically, I would say that in my experience, such a conversion is triggered by some kind of life experience, a crisis of some sort. This is a difficult process for us, and 
The results are by no means assured for our faith. But if a person can hold on to faith, they might just come out of what John of the Cross called a dark night of the soul with a stronger and more vibrant faith than they have had previously. This may sound like it's the pinnacle of spiritual maturity, something like what Paul talks about to us in his letter today from the Ephesians. But in fact, most of those who study faith development, people like Fowler, will say that there are lots of stages even beyond this, beyond getting out of that dark night of the soul, that moment of crisis. Maybe it's going off to college. Maybe it's the end of a relationship or the beginning of a new one. For example, there's a stage of faith where we learn to take all things religious less seriously, if for no other reason than that they are of human origin and therefore wholly imperfect, certainly inerrant and very fallible. At this stage, the idea of different views about God don't pose such a threat to us, perhaps because we become more interested in an authentic relationship with the Spirit, and with a living God. In this place, we can affirm our own beliefs while at the same time allowing that the reality of God is big enough and loving enough, vibrant enough to encompass other, even seemingly contradictory views of the living God. But I would suggest that even this place, if we've ever been in it, is not yet what Paul calls today the full measure of the stature of Christ. In fact, there is another place, another place that only the greatest sages and saints through the ages have reached, or we think they have reached. People we know well whose stories like Mother Teresa, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Christian anarchists like Dorothy Day, and leaders like Mohandas Gandhi would have us understand. At this place, the center of one's being shifts from self, emptied into God. And because of this, those who come to this place are able to go out and serve the world with little or no thought to the outcomes for themselves. They don't stop to count the cost. The cost of discipleship, as Bonhoeffer said. At this stage, one can see all people as children of God. And therefore, one is concerned not just for the salvation of one's own soul or one's nation or one's tribe, or the fellow believers, but for the salvation of the world. It seems to me this sounds a lot like what Paul had in mind when he urged the Christians of his day, writing as he did to the Ephesians, to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Specifically, a life worthy looks like this. Be humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. 
And just in case we miss the point that this life is one that should transcend all lines that divide the body of Christ, Paul adds a rationale to his call for unity. There is one body and one spirit. Just as you were called to one hope, you were called one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Imagine, if you will, reaching such a place of spiritual maturity, of having grown up, where we're so focused on the love of God that we see every person as a child of a loving God, where we can find truth in every point of view, even those that most differ from our own. And we can serve anyone, and we can serve everyone, because that is what Christ would have us do. This is the stage that I think is the hardest to reach, at least for me. I simply can't let go of attachment to my own self and biases. I think we have too much of a need to be right so that we can prove that those with whom we disagree are wrong. And maybe that's why we can readily identify with Jesus' disciples. Again and again, the Gospels show us that Jesus' own apostles completely missed the point of his life and especially of his teaching. And this Gospel from John we hear, Jesus teaches a throng of people in a deserted place. And afterwards, he tells his disciples to feed the people gathered. And notice how they respond. Who, me? What are we going to feed them? They're afraid, they complain, they can't see. And they say, where will they all sit? And when will we find time to cook for all of them? I wonder if the request that Jesus makes to us and to them is not just a pragmatic one. I wonder if he was trying to point his disciples to an important truth related to our spiritual growth. The life that Jesus points us toward is one that is only attained by a commitment to service. Service. One that simply says, yes, Lord. How may I love you today, Lord? And whom shall I love? When we're called to do something we didn't expect to do, or even this, yes, Lord, I will serve if you will help me. I submit we can only attain to this full stature of Christ, of growing up into the head, by following Jesus' example of selfless love and sacrificial service to others. The Greeks called it kenosis, cracked open, self-emptying, and not stopping to count the cost. I think this relates to our transformation now at Grace. On a Sunday where... There's only a few of us here. The virus has come back. We don't know what's going to happen. We're gathered in our homes praying together. And in the coming months, we have lots of opportunities to serve and to love, to grow and to change.
Friends, we need each other now more than ever to be humble and meek, to forgive, to not stop and count the cost of our forgiving. We're not a nation of vaccinated and unvaccinated, not in the end. We're not a people who are one party or another, not in the end. Those of us who follow Jesus are one body, one spirit, because we come from one Lord, one faith, and one baptism. When we come back to this place and it's safe again, I hope we'll consider stopping by that baptismal font that a growing number of children and their families put their hands into, where we stop and simply pause before we begin chapel. God be in my head and my understanding. God be in my heart and in my loving. God be in my arms, and may I stretch them out and be of service to you, a person of compassion for this world and the life of the world to come. God bless you, and I miss you today. Amen. <laughs>